So we've just walked um, almost 25 steps down underground and we're in a Molotov cocktail uh, making warehouse. There are people of all ages here. They have a ton of glass bottles and they're just each doing different steps and it seems like working in teams to pass things around. That's our colleague Shivano Grady. She's reporting from an underground warehouse in Kyiv. And in this warehouse, just over a dozen regular people are making homemade explosives. Yes, of course. Okay, so what's your name? Uh, my name is Valery. And your last name? Uh, Valiev. So we're from the Washington Post newspaper. How old are you? Uh, 17. 17? Mm, yes. Oh my God. Um, okay. And uh, can you just tell us what's going on here? I mean, just uh, We are making uh, Molotovs for Russian troops. Yes, so it's all I mean. For these Ukrainians, this feels like something that they can do to defend themselves and their city against the Russian invasion. The floor in this warehouse is covered in donated supplies, empty wine bottles, bits of styrofoam. These are the tools that they are using to assemble these explosives. And then what, what's the first step? So the first step, you put that inside. Yes. And then what happens next? Uh, next, we use a special liquid, which uh, we have. Do your parents know that you're here? You're only 17. Um, um, are you? Are, are your parents yes. living in Kiev? I mean, I'm not uh, defending our country with uh, with a gun, so it's okay. Yeah. So they know that you're here. Yes. And are they proud of you? How do they feel? I think they are proud of me. I think I'm in, I'm in the right place in the right. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 28th, and it has been four days since the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. 500,000 people have fled the country, according to the UN Refugee Agency, but many others are staying. Men between the ages of 16 and 60 are required to stay under martial law, and others are choosing to stay and fight. As of the time of this taping, Russia has not been able to take Kyiv, and Ukraine is making this harder than Russia expected, according to U.S. intelligence. On Monday, there was the first attempt at talks between delegations from Ukraine and Russia and Belarus, but they didn't get anywhere. The delegations said talks would continue in the coming days. The U.S. and its European allies put into effect a sweeping set of sanctions aimed at crippling Russia's economy. The value of the Russian ruble has plunged, and people there are swarming ATMs to try to withdraw cash. Meanwhile, some of the heaviest fighting since the conflict began has been happening in Kharkiv. Curfew had just been lifted, and civilians were out trying to do errands in broad daylight when the shelling started. At least 11 civilians were killed and dozens hospitalized, according to the head of the government there. Ukraine is looking for help wherever they can get it. President Volodymyr Zelensky is asking for Ukraine to be granted immediate membership into the European Union. Each crime, each shelling from the occupants against us makes us and our partners more and more united. The world is also looking to NATO to put more pressure on Russia and bring an end to the violence. On Friday, the NATO response force was activated for the first time in history. But why is NATO being pulled into this if Ukraine isn't even in NATO? 
That is the question that a lot of us have been asking as we try to understand the nuances of this global crisis. So today, we're doing a deep dive into the origins of NATO and why it's at the center of this conflict. That's after the break. We'll be right back. So, Sarah, I want to ask you a question that I feel like I'm not allowed to ask because it's so dumb or it feels like I'm dumb for asking it. But what is NATO? NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Sarah Kreps is a professor of government, law and public policy and director of the Tech Policy Lab at Cornell University. The seed that sort of sparked this whole conflict was a disagreement over NATO, this security organization that was founded after World War II in opposition to Soviet aggression. Ukraine wants to join NATO. Russia feels threatened by that. And now that puts NATO in this difficult spot. Because Ukraine isn't part of NATO. But if NATO allows Russia to take Ukraine, like, will Russian President Vladimir Putin really stop there? Or will this empower him to invade other countries? As NATO has watched while Russia invades Ukraine, it's raised so many questions about the relevance of NATO and its role in the world today. So we wanted to talk to Sarah to get a totally basic 101 on NATO. Why does it exist in the first place, how it's changed over time, and whether it will be able to withstand this aggression from Putin? NATO is a 30-member collective security agreement. And so these member states have agreed that an attack on one is attack against all. The core founding members were the U.S., Denmark, Canada, France, Norway, the U.K., and it has expanded over time to include almost all of Western and Central Europe. And I gather that one country that is not in NATO is Russia. Russia is decidedly not in NATO. And importantly here, neither is Ukraine. So one of the concerns was that NATO was expanding eastward and Russia was observing this expansion. And there were discussions about whether Ukraine would become part of NATO. And that made them very nervous. So I think to understand why this whole organization exists, that seems like it's just there to oppose Russia. Clearly, you have to go back into history to get why NATO was first invented. So can you take us back there? Like, when was NATO started and what was the thinking behind it? Yeah, so let's go back to the late 1940s. So this is after World War II, and there is a realization that one of the reasons why we have Nazism rise in 1930s is because Germany was still economically eviscerated from World War One, And let's try to rebuild Europe so that we don't have this kind of economic collapse that gives rise to autocratic leaders and regimes. Mm -hmm. So that was one part. But then looking eastward to what was the Soviet Union, they had carried out the Berlin airlift to cut off supplies between the Western part of Europe and the Western quadrant of Berlin, which was cut off through East Germany. 
And the Soviet Union was developing nuclear weapons. And so we have this growing wariness of Soviet power and the possible ambition of bringing in these parts of Central Europe and then kind of swallowing up Western Europe. So these countries got together and said, like, we are basically going to stand together to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't get too powerful. But how did they plan to do that? Like, what was that promise to each other that they were making that would make them strong enough to defend themselves against the USSR? So Article 5 is really the cornerstone of NATO, which is the part that says that the attack on one member is considered an attack on all members. And so if Poland is attacked, then all of these countries have agreed to go and aid Poland. I mean, that seems like a pretty meaningful thing to promise, right? This is a huge consideration that I think had and has bedeviled the organization, which is, can we really, as it was put during the Cold War, trade Paris for New York? Are Americans, if Paris is invaded or France is invaded, going to say, yes, please send my son, daughter, niece, nephew, dad over to fight for France? Because we're cut off by a large ocean. Why is our security tied up with that of Europe? And yet, for this organization to work, there needs to be some kind of concreteness and credibility that members will follow through on that promise. And so there's always been this tension. We know from Article 5 that these members have made that promise. But when it really comes down to it, is that something these member countries are going to follow through with? Hmm. So, Sarah, what was different about NATO once the Soviet Union had dissolved and the Cold War was over and the USSR was less of a threat? So one of the kind of core pillars in the founding of NATO was that we would have this democratic organization, the Union of Democracies, pitted against non-democracies. And I think that became a kind of thread and motivation after the Cold War insofar as, look, this is an organization that is a, a membership of democracies, and we think more democracies are better. And so what we will do in this kind of way of creating a more peaceful world is expand the number of democracies into these countries that were previously not democratic. And so that's kind of how things look after the end of the Cold War, where there's inertia toward continuing to exist, but repurposing in a way around democratic expansion rather than as necessarily a defense organization. Mm -hmm. If you no longer really have this threat, you might be able to sustain NATO, but can you sustain it with these commitments of resources? And that's something that start, really started to fray in the 90s and 2000s, which is we don't really have a threat. Why should we be spending 2% of our GDP on bombs and bullets? Because we have, we're, we're these democracies that have pretty robust social welfare states, and we really prefer butter over guns. And so once that starts happening, you can see how this creates some tensions within the organization from the countries like the United States that are spending $700 billion a year on defense and the countries that aren't. 
Interesting. So that once the Soviet Union ceases to be so much of a threat, the calculus starts to change on the parts of the leaders of these member nations of NATO who are like, do I like how much am I really willing to put uh, at stake for this organization when I don't even think that it's that necessary anymore because we're not worried about the Soviet Union? Right, exactly. And then I think what also starts to happen as you go from 12 countries to, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 is that you could start to think, well, if I don't pull my share, you know, the other 29 will and we'll be fine. Plus, if things really get heated and we've only spent 1.7% of our GDP, is the alliance really not going to come to our aid if we're attacked? I mean, that seems like a gamble that you might be willing to take as a member country and be thinking that the rest of these countries wouldn't then kind of hold your feet to the fire in that situation. More recently, you know, you think about President Obama, President Trump, President Biden, like how do they think about NATO and what have been their approaches to this organization? Trump was obviously quite bombastic in his um, criticism of the member states' contributions, but the spirit of what he was urging is something that had gone back for decades which is that countries weren't spending as much as they needed to. And it was because they knew that the Americans were spending billions on defense and would be there to help them. Again, he just kind of took it to the next level. And I think that he certainly introduced some question about our commitments to these smaller countries if they were to be invaded. And I think that was the part that was quite destructive from kind of a credibility perspective, which is that you have this organization that you have the 30 members and they are all considered equal. So it's not like we'll help France, but not Montenegro. They're all the same. And so if one is attacked, that's the whole point of Article 5. It's an attack on all. I'm also just wondering, like, how how often has like that NATO pact of we're going to come to the defense of any country that's that's part of NATO. How often has that been used or employed? Only once. So the only time that Article 5 was invoked was after 9-11, when the U.S. was attacked. And NATO convened and invoked Article 5, which was the attack on the United States was an attack on all of NATO. That's interesting because I feel like It seems like we're really pressed about our responsibilities to help other people and defend other countries when they come under attack. But that the only time that that's been invoked is actually for the U.S. and to get other countries to help us. Right. But the fact was, and maybe this is testimony to the effect of the alliance, is that it's not clear that there were other historical episodes where it should have been invoked because there weren't incursions into these NATO countries besides that attack. So we're at this moment where, if I could boil it down, right, it seems like Ukraine really wanted to be in NATO. Russia really didn't want Ukraine to be in NATO. And now there's this question of what NATO will do now that Ukraine has been invaded. So can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that are brought up for NATO in this, like, identity crisis of what is this organization responsible for when we watch a country being invaded by Russia? I think there is rightfully a lot of unease within these newer NATO countries now that used to be in that Soviet sphere of influence. So the Baltic countries, because I think the question is, you know, again, there has been 
the question insinuated into the discourse, at least in prior administrations, would we really go to defend these countries? And I think what's worrisome about what we've seen from Putin is it's not clear where he's going to stop. And Mm -hmm. so I think the level of risk for NATO has increased exponentially in the last week or so. I also think this is a really interesting moment because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least to me it feels like we don't see big countries invade other big countries that often with the intention of being like, I just want your country to now become part of my country. That that feels like a very old school, like, I don't know, 1800s way of like conducting global politics that you don't really see anymore. And I guess I wonder, like, what is the global risk to just NATO and NATO countries allowing Russia to say, yeah, we can just invade other countries and decide that they are no longer independent anymore. Like, that's the thing that we can do unless you stop us. It's, again, a really great question and cause for concern because for the last several decades, countries just mostly respected these non-intervention norms and kind Mm -hmm. of this idea that countries were sovereign and shouldn't be intervened upon. So it's sort of one thing to conduct a peacekeeping operation, which is, I I think, an interesting point that this at some point how Russia framed its intervention. It's a different move altogether to invade with the aim of actually holding on to the country. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where... Many people were surprised that this was just Russia kind of bluffing or posturing. And the fact that they actually went through with it and violated all of these non-intervention norms really was, I think, eye-opening and a concern that it's a harbinger of what it's uh, willing and able to do going forward. And the fact that Putin also invoked, we are Russia, we are a nuclear power, is also cause for alarm. Mm-hmm. That's why it's really troubling and alarming from the perspective of NATO, because these are nuclear-armed countries. And so there's a limit to how much we can escalate, because do you escalate against a country that has put you on notice that he has and is willing to use nuclear weapons? So it's been clear for a while now that there really is no interest in U.S. troops being sent to Ukraine to help Ukrainians defend themselves. And they're not a NATO country, so we don't have to do that. But theoretically, we do have to do that for other NATO countries that are bordering Ukraine. So, I mean, is that is that really on the table? Like, are we as a country committed to still like acting out Article 5 and coming to the defense of these other countries if they were to get invaded by Russia next month? I think that's a great question and one that has always been a question with NATO, which is, are we really willing to sacrifice our people to protect the Belgians? And I think as we've had kind of the generational turnover that did not grow up with the Soviet threat, uh, I think that credibility is even more questionable And as these countries have grown in number, it's even more questionable whether we would send our troops to defend these countries. On the other hand, I think what would have to happen is that we would need some real leadership to help the public understand what the issue is and explain the consequences of inaction. And I think that in some ways, Putin is sort of helping make that case because I do think his rhetoric is coming across as a little bit unhinged that 
threat of using nuclear weapons, I think, has gotten a lot of people's attention. One key thing about Russia is they have intercontinental ballistic missiles. They have hundreds or thousands of missiles that can hit Washington, D.C. And so I'm not suggesting that they're on the verge of doing that, but I think that they have to be kept contained. Because what I don't think anyone wants is for them to feel like they have a green light to go from Ukraine into other countries further west. What is surprising to a lot of people watching this is that Russia, A, wasn't bluffing, and B, has been involved uh, uh, militarily in all of Ukraine rather than just at the periphery, which I think was kind of the expectation. And so with that, it's hard not to watch that and think, if he's willing to send troops and occupy this entire country, uh, who's next? Sarah Kreps is a professor of government, law, and public policy at Cornell University. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. Just a heads up that I will be out for the next week through Tuesday, March 8th. In my place, you will hear our colleagues Alexis Diao, David Betancourt, and Elahe Izadi filling in as guest hosts. We have some excellent stories lined up with them that I cannot wait for you to hear. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.